0: Chapter eight, Wednesday, 6.40 GMT minus five. A man, a plan, Panama. From the moment the ship entered the queue of vessels awaiting the green flag for passage across the isthmus, Anser has been preparing himself for a return to the world of open skies and moving air. Thanks to skimmers and huge investments in canal widening and upgrades, the ship lies idle at anchor for less than 12 hours. During that time, Through what seems endless hours of stupefyingly humid stale air, downtime, Answer spends his waking efforts alternating between exercises meant to sharpen his physical power and other exercises meant to revive and refresh the reach of senses compressed by the enforced confinement below decks. Once his ship weighs anchor and slips into the narrows of the first locks at Panama City, Answer begins the airing out of his senses in earnest. For the next half day, he sends his mind on distance viewing trips, launching his spirit across the reaches of jungle and heat-warped hills that slope down to lap at the canal. He hitches a ride with an enormous harpy eagle as it soars on thermal drifts over one of the Earth's largest remaining triple-canopy rainforests. He hears its screeching call, sees amid the pastel green and brown smear of jungle what it sees. There is an exhilarating plunge under the back of a rabbit, the seizure of tendons and wrench of talons. During rest periods, he lies as still as possible, occasionally holding his breath, and listens to the vagrant musical tones produced by innumerable tendrils of ditch grass that rise from the bottom of the chagres to caress the freighter's slippery belly. Answer makes his way to the base of the interdeck ladder. The ship has skimmed to a stop, and he knows this means they're at a place where there is nothing for him to lose. He makes his way above the decks two steps at a time. Jungle air, wet sock-dense, absorbs him as he emerges into daylight. His eyes water in reaction to the brilliance of the equatorial sun. Less than a mile off, the Gatun locks, press the lake into a narrow-wasted escape to the Atlantic. A crewman spots him from above, recognizes he's not someone who belongs. Answer ignores the shouts and summons as he moves to the railing of the ship. Below, sodden stobs of long-immersed forest point heavenward like the naked fingers of drowning giants. Now, crewmen are shouting in urison, running toward him. Their words are Chinese and malay, but their tones mean stop. Hey you, what the fuck are you doing? Where are you going? It doesn't matter. He steps into the dense air and sinks deeply into the lukewarm stale of water 70 feet below before beginning his ascent from the depths with the excitement of a Lazarus rising from his final bed. His swim to shore is a relief Each crawling stroke refreshes the spirit and rehabilitates the muscles of his body. As he emerges from the brackish chemical slime of Lago Gaitun onto the oily, slippery muck of beach, Answer revels in the fact that his presence in the physical world. He orients himself then begins to run barefoot toward the small town of Paraíso, invisibly wending his way into the pueblo by moving along the bottom of an overgrown storm channel. Hogs, draped with fly-specked mud, barely notice him as they browse in trash-heap ditches. As he hustles up the sloping side of the reeking waterway, answer begins to hunger for the clean and ordered space of home. This he shuts off the moment mind-wander makes itself seen. Never let the future or past distract you from the present. It's the quickest way to get dead he knows of. Rene Tall has a sugar shack on the southern fringe of Paraiso. Like so many other layover places, paying for an empty room is por si acaso cost of doing business inside buried under a loose aggregate of slate flats there is a safe anchored in the ground by a one-ton robe of cement as a result of mutual interest answer has had infrequent but very personal contacts with renee for nearly 20 years the place is empty he crawls into the shack through a hole in the wall pulls aside the debris of flooring and opens the safe inside there is a singleton one number only antique cell phone $100,000 $100,000 in small bills. Despite a near-perfect run to irrelevance by the Republicans back at the turn of the century, the one thing the United States still has is money that's really worth something everywhere. A high-voltage shitstick, so named for the effect 50,000 volts tend to have on the lower intestines, two pounds of high-energy bars, five gallons of water, a fist-sized water purifier, vented jungle boots, shorts, a windbreaker, and an ancient 12-gauge shorty with a wax-sealed box of hand-load wall breakers. Answer unwraps the phone, inserts a battery that's with it, and pads the dial button. As he waits for an answer, he cracks one of the stacks of cash and peels off $5,000. That should cover it. He strips off, steps away from the stash hole, and raises the water overhead. Mud and slime stream off his body until his skin is once again more or less recognizably tan. He slips on the baggy shorts, shoes, and windbreaker, then wads his own dirty clothes in the same bag and places it back in the safe. The phone begins to vibrate on the stone floor. Never use a ring. Yeah, answer says as he picks up, carefully holding the arm-length phone until he knows for certain who's on the other end. That you, boss? The smoke-edged grate of Rene's voice makes it to his waiting ear. Boss? Sorry, wrong number, answer says, and slaps shut the receiver, dropping the phone, less the battery, into the safe. As he bends to shut the steel door, his eye catches the stick. He dips into the box, and snags the innocuous looking rod before slapping the door closed. He stands in place for what he calculates as five minutes before letting himself out of the shack the way he came in. It takes him almost an hour to circle the village and find his way south to the edge of the hugely overgrown municipal soccer pitch. Sitting at the north end of the field, a small plane stands idling. In a couple of minutes, a stocky figure steps from the trees, approaches the plane, stops at the tip of its wing, and raises both arms as if stretching. It turns and mounts the cockpit. Within seconds, the plane begins a slow taxi. As it turns past his post in the high grass, answer steps from behind the screen of foliage and trots toward the moving vehicle. He catches the wing strut, yanks open the door, and swings up into the passenger seat in a single motion. The plane leaves the field behind it as he is snapping into his restraints. The pilot pays no attention to the passenger as they complete a series of flight operations which bring the small craft to a cruising altitude slightly above tree level. Answer realizes the pilot is a woman. A mountain of thick curls are stacked atop her head in a pinned knot. Her eyes are well hidden behind the wrap of sunglasses. The style of eyewear makes Answer think about how important it is to be able to look someone in the eye. Sunglasses must be the cheapest disguise on earth. They keep the casual observer from finding out about you. Who is the woman sitting next to me? Without being able to look her in the eye, I can't tell whether she's stoned or straight What her temperament is likely to be nothing she may as well be a robot apart from respiration the first thing you use to tell if someone is telling the truth is whether or not their pupils contract his mind idles in place on the enigma of identity hidden or disclosed the deliberate effort to deceive and disguise that a simple pair of sunglasses suggests he shakes his head at his own suspicious nature too much time around people with bad intentions the flight is smooth the operator competent Service is service, no matter who provides it. He it turns his head to take in the wonder of the Panamanian jungle as it sweeps past below. Their course takes them across the terrain, he knows by heart. Down across the Chagres River drainage with its countless canyon filaments and out toward the Carretera Interamericana. They skirt the distant mess of tin roofs that is San Miguelito. The Camarones from Bahia de Panamá are great when they're barbecued with a little lemon and tomato, he thinks. They're staying down on the foothills of the savanna drainage now. Chepo will be off to the south there somewhere as they pass over the silvered splay of inland llanos and creeks that make up the basin of the Golfo de Santa Miguel. The variety of wildlife is breathtaking. An elevated level of living energy hums in the air above the treetops as countless birds dot the sky. He's heard that every 10 square kilometers of jungle there holds 200 species of bird, half of which remain uncatalogued. A flight of blue cranes lifts off like a feathery deck leaving its house behind. The sun is low in the east, not even noon yet. Shadows stretch infirm extensions of trees out onto watery open spaces, whose surface is overgrown with enormous leaves and algae giving it the appearance of solid land. Flying so low, the chalk-colored saraña, Darian loom over the landscape, even though they are really nothing more than a series of low hills. In the south, the road must be ending. He thinks about Pinogana, where the Chukduke and Tuare merge. You can boat down to Paca and Limon from there, but after that, it's strictly foot traffic. The sun is beginning to iron out the shadows now. The pilot picks up a short-range mic. Making you out in five, she says. Moving lower, now practically in the treetops, answer sees a dark knot of howler monkeys swirling below as they hurry to escape the menace of a sound more threatening than their own. A single giant sloth clings to the swaying uppermost branch of a giant sabre tree, his dense body a foreign growth of fur in the heavens. Then, unexpectedly, an opening appears in the choke of forest cover. It's only partly stripped of vegetation, no more than 400 meters long and 30 across. They fall into the opening like buzzards on a fresh carcass, landing well on the rough jungle strip. Thursday, 9.34, GMT-8. Fog has teeth. It chews into your bones, worrying the marrow with microscopic thoroughness that the whole body aches in response to its penetrating hunger. Collie Gray knows this for a fact. Shivering is symptomatic. God damn, I hate this weather. His coffee is weak, bitter, and cold, and he has a headache from sleeping with his neck at an acute angle to the wall. The appearance of Monica, a bow-legged mute whose miserable countenance reminds most people of the grim reaper in drag does nothing to boost his sense of comparative good fortune. At least her descent into wretchedness can be blamed on an accident of birth and social corruption. Kali can't pin his own situation on any such conspiracy of wretched and uncontrollable external actors. Just me, he mumbles to his greasy reflection in the coffee cup, just me. And right now, there is no comfort in that irony. How you doing, Monica? He moves to make room for her on the sofa. I noticed you sewed some of those surplus tent sections or a pretty tight windbreaker over your place. The short woman shaves her hands on a tin cup full of acrid coffee, rocking and nodding as she looks at the floor. She makes no sound. Always amazing what you can do with that sewing machine. Wish I could sew like that. I could manufacture one of those things, but I sure as hell can't use them. He moves again to bring himself closer to the old-fashioned kerosene stove the only source of warmth in the 40-foot container. Spring in Portland is not usually severe, not usually. This year, with the longest continuous period of temperatures below 35 degrees, he wishes he were somewhere, anywhere else. He recalls the time when climate change was still a contentious issue, not anymore. That was back when the river outside was a meter lower, when there was more room for people to walk, let alone live. Looking at Monica's outfit, a piecework assemblage of street clothes, outerwear, and sleeping bag filling, Kali feels a little less anxiety. At least she has the skills to save herself from exposure, which is a lot more than some intellectually able people can say. The entry baffle shakes as someone breaks into the makeshift airlock from outside. A low rush of cold air skids across the floor, nagging at Kali's ankles. Weather like this is an enemy there's just no reasoning with. Pillhead John steps through the curtain, muttering and spitting disgust. I'm going to say, I'm going to sure as hell going to say, there's no proof of God anywhere out there today. The British man coughs as he stomps the cold from his feet. I mean, out there, Jack, just plain mean. And I just don't know that many folks would subscribe to the notion of a just plain mean God. Know what I'm saying? Before anyone can chance an answer, he carries on. Of course, the old good book, that God, he was a miserable son of a bitch. So maybe there'd be some would say this here weather's proof I was wrong. What say, Phil? Collie watches a cloud of steam rise from his mouth while at the greeting. I thought you were having an El Nino year. Anybody know how the fuck it could have been misplaced. Man, what is wrong with you? Pillhead John gives Collie a grimace. Is it just you can't pronounce the word pill or what? Why hell you keep calling me Phil? A malicious grin slides across John's bowling ball face. Supposed to be smart, you are. Folks around here say, hell, from time to time, I say you're the smartest man within shouting distance. So how is it that with all that smart, you can't get my name right. It's not Bill or Phil or Will, it's PILL, P-I-L-L, as in that which alleviates pain. You know, codeine, morphine, two and all, Sec. Don't let me have to remind you how many times we've had this conversation. Callie interrupts, I don't like PILL. I'll call you John. I'll even use your last name if you like, but put me on the no chance list for PILL. Reminds me of some lame asses at Narcotics Anonymous meeting with that little I'm a dope fiend drill. Forget that shit. John squats near the altar of heat with worshiping hands extended. This here now, this old warm can, is something a man can believe in. You know? You though, you're a hard man, son. Truly hard. He chafes his fingertips on his shirt front. So are you ready to go down there? We don't have to do it now if you don't want to. We can always deal with these people later when the weather's warmer. No? Holly steps over to the coat rack and begins pulling on a heavy jacket. We definitely cannot let something like this go. If we let them invade and lay claim to any part of the public land along the river, it will be a concession that leads the way of the rest of the community. It's like when I was a kid and my dad bought a dog home. He said if you want an ugly dog in the house, you have to bring it in tail first. If the folks buy that part, they'll live with the rest. This here is just the tail of the dog. We don't really have a choice about it, do we? So let's get after it. Okay, my friend, just checking, Pillhead John says. You know I hate labor of any description. As they move toward the curtain, Monica stands. Please, Monica, Collie rests his hand on her shoulder. You just keep out of this. Just stay here and make sure the place doesn't burn down while we're gone, right? See you in a little while. Outside, the weather is in fact truly mean. Dense fog presses onto the river channel. Collie finds it hard to believe you can have ground fog and high wind at the same time. Some law in physics of torment should make such a diabolical combination impossible. Rain begins to fall. Collie thinks it's got to be a warming trend, most definitely. As the two men make their way toward North Encampment, the engineer and inventor in Collie takes inventory of the adaptability that surrounds him on all sides. Forty-foot shipping containers conscripted from long disuse line the upper level of the river passage, linked together in chained tunnels and stacked like miniature cast-off skyscrapers. It is a city built of repurposed materials. Railroad flats from the abandoned transit lines act as a foundation for blocks of cargo containers, all connected by ports, panels, doorways, and crawl spaces in a virtual apartment complex miles long and a quarter of a mile deep. The main walking paths that radiate out into the warren of ad hoc construction that make up the bulk of Newtown are thick plastic gratings. All these 8 by 16 grids are made up of recycled bottles, plastics, packing materials, furniture fill, melted down and cast into adobe forms manufactured by the citizens of this same place. All the electricity that powers and lights the countless licit and illicit projects undertaken by the 150,000 or so Newtown souls runs in underground ducts. Most resources may be owned by tidysiders, he thinks, but Newtown has a planning committee that ensures the environment is no uglier than it needs to be. Every hundred meters or so, emissions evaporators stub into the air, the captured methane is piped to a generator, and all the power is shoved back into the microgrid. The exchange is not absolutely even, but there is no robbery. Unemployment and lack of new demand for human labor has provided this Newtown with a great wealth of talent, local talent. Microbiologists working with sanitation engineers and industrial designers have ensured that the weight of this community's own waste cannot be used as an excuse to call for its destruction. Greater Portland's own planning department has mimicked the innovative design here as a foundation for its own sanitation works remodel. Outdoors, people are moving in all directions. Weather does nothing to hinder the commerce of living. As far as Collie can see, encampments line the river channels on the southwest These settlements extend their reach from below here at Selwood, on up through what used to be Forest Park, all the way northwest to St. John's Bridge, Riverday, Riverday. If anyone had been able to delude themselves about the pivotal role of water in the West, Riverday cured the world of that delusion forever. The Willamette is quiet today. Nothing much crossing through the stranded fracture and tumble of outdated ships and creosote plain of barges lying on the soot gray river. But every once in a while, Tali feels a nervous twinge of worry snatch at his spine as he realizes anew that he and countless thousands of others have taken refuge in a channel carved out by the very river they rely upon for sustenance. Planning can only secure a percentage of potential where nature is involved. Their town is anchored 12 feet above historic high water marks, maybe 80% of it 30 feet uphill from that, but climate revolution has taken all the rhyme out of odds-making. As he plods along, You can only feel some relief that everyone expects the worst nowadays. That is what they plan for. Since the upstream dams were pulled apart as a security measure in 18, River Day had a hell of a lot bigger effect than it was supposed to, there's theoretically no chance of flooding down this low. They say even the Columbia in a thousand-year rain wouldn't do too much harm. That's nice and all, but some elements in him knows that nature abhors a vacuum. Now there's tidal surge to go along with runoff, he is certain that even if some empty headed folks here believe the unchecked river poses no danger to those living within its boundaries and those of the ancient floodplain, nature will take great pains to exploit the voids in their beliefs with proof to the contrary. He glances up at the Rossi Island Bridge, standing at rigid attention with industrial Portland in the background, its countless chemical rainmakers spewing trash into the sullen sky. What could do more harm than us? God willing and the river don't rise, the old rune meanders through his head as he snugs his chin down into his raised collar at the same moment he wishes he believed in gods that could keep rivers from rising. That would be good. No matter how often he tries, Kali cannot fathom how this great nation, once the leader of the free world and all that, has come down to this. He does know for certain that this is what happens when the government abdicates its obligation to speak to the needs of its people. Now the rowdy public voice, the shrill of protests and timid appeals for aid that were the vocal cords of representative democracy are stilled, compressed into spied on voicemails, skillfully edited infomercials expressing the government's point of view, and the now hear this legislative proclamations. Gods of the interweb pander to the self-absorption of these governments now. The spy state, Turns out to be unrestricted business. Big data. Back then, it was the rage. Today, it is the enemy. Taxation without representation seems like a harmless experiment in fundraising by comparison to the all-money-in, no-money-out work of biz-owned government by fiat. By and for the people? Not anymore. Not like this. As the two men wend their way along the riverbank, others fall in with them. Mind if we join Call? says a woman who steps onto the walkway close behind. Collie nods, but doesn't bother answering as she falls into step beside him. He knows her query is nothing more than a formality. Why, after all, would Hedda Journally need his permission to do anything? If I was a Nobel Prize-winning physicist, I don't think I'd be asking anybody for a pass. The number of strollers coincidentally heading his direction grows by the meter until their numbers rise to several hundred. Now there is a buzz trailing him. The patter of rain and the mutter and hum of countless private conversations coalesced to become an ambient bass tone. If I had a metronome, I could set a beat to that, Collie thinks. He risks a glance over his shoulder and catches sight of a crew clad in the startling orange salvage jumpsuit that are so popular among the young. Prison style, they say. Not far now, John. You don't have to do this, you know. Not today. Are they like this? Be just fine to lay in bed. Say what I'm saying? Don't want to hear it, man. You know what I'm saying. Pillhead John counters. We might want to offer the rest of the folks an option, I guess. Could be some of them ain't the right mind. Collie has a hard time suppressing a smile. And what mind would that be? The right mind, I mean, if you can refresh my memory. He stops walking. 400 meters ahead, a wad of men are milling around on a flat spot 15 meters above the water. He turns to face the accumulated knot of those who've been following. Nice to see you all out for a stroll this morning, he shouts fine day for a little outdoor activity. The crowd sounds slumps into a deafening growl. Six hundred pairs of feet shuffle, twelve hundred hands clap to fire warmth. People are slopping off the path, stirring mud with each footfall. Within minutes, this place will become a morass, Collie realizes. At a minimum, it'll be a swamp, but a muck hole free from the deadly possibility of drone strikes, at least. During the great fascination, the tech decades back at the turn, when the approach of every question, every minute problem was driven by the illusion that there was a technical gadget, a solution that there had to be one, drones emerged as a plaything. Any fool could have seen how that was going to go bad. And Kali always said, when bad things happen, humans are involved. The Israelis and the CIA made worst first use of them everywhere from Gaza to Waziristan. and suddenly, Everyone could have one. Kids made movies with them, flew them into houses for sports, scaring the shit out of people. Next, it was the terrorists turned nerve gas and all. Bank robbers, Amazon, gangsters started figuring out how to leverage their work without having to worry about problems with the help or snitches. Corporations took up the call, deploying them as private security and data gathering and delivery services before graduating to use them in ways the government and bad guys had already perfected. One of Kali's first design projects when he moved to Portland side was a little machine that could detect and kill drones. He had watched the war crimes vids of Gaza as a boy, seen the after-dark life of New York and Lisbon where cops used floaters with impunity to enforce hunches as though they were fact. His response to this hazard was a tactical disc the size of an old-time CD. Powered by a battery-operated electric turbine engine wrapped like a coil as the body and mounted with stabilizers, it had a ceiling efficiency of 35,000 feet and used a modified welding laser set in a quarter-inch deep 360-degree field of fire, dropped down in the center to balance and cut its target in strategic places. It either blinded the drone or downed it. The DK, as it was known, was cheap, plentiful and painfully accurate countermeasure that ensured in short order none of the corporate tactical people could justify the expense of sacrificing hundreds of millions of dollars in high-tech surveillance gear to spy on rabble. A million to five hundred was a shitty exchange rate. That the skies above Newtown were no longer haunted by the specter of would-be phantom killers and peep machines was down to that. The demand for his cheap giant slayer was huge. Other global Newtowns adopted them. Communes and political actors all bought the defensive end to predatory surveillance. Nobody really wanted to tolerate being chained to an anonymous assassin's whims anymore. That phase of dogshit decision-making in favor of the shiny shit was finally and definitely under siege. He even heard that the manufacturers were losing drone sales at a fierce rate. Kali felt a tinge of pride as he looked up at the skies clear of man-made menace. Nothing like civil unrest they were about to unroll could have happened seven years ago. He also felt the satisfaction of knowing that, through the cutouts, Blessed them, his people were making bank on those rascals. I want you all to know I appreciate your support, Collie said, turning his attention to the present. He could not help but yell. Best to be aware, those folks up ahead are probably not celebrating a birthday, the crowd laughed. A walloping, disjointed roar of anger and resentment came from them, glancing from shoulder to shoulder in the mob, caroming out, striking Collie in the face like a fist of compressed air. Dealing with the Incorporated Federation of Business Associates is a dangerous proposition whenever you have something they want. Kali has had his own practical lesson in how far these players will go to claim their desired goal. Who am I to speak for them, these people, these good people, he asks himself. Who elected me? My outrage? Still, he sees that their advantage in the here and now is the whirl of angry momentum flowing out of their mass. Kali starts walking, and with each stride he picks up speed. Let's see what it is. Standing at the head of his group, Pusher sees someone, maybe two men, break away from the clot of roamers advancing from Newtown. Adrenaline shocks his legs into motion. About time we got some action. Ozone sharpens the air, filling his nose with the promise of impending hail. There'd be nothing better than a fight on open ground in a bog of beating hail, he thinks. Always love the way my senses load up when I get that adrenaline ice meth cocktail going. He reaches under the flap of his chest plate for a stick, but changes his mind. He wants his contact unimpaired by drugs this time, naked. The feeling of striking another person, hammering them with your own fists, is more satisfying than any other form of conflict. Every physical sensation takes on heightened intensity during the fight. The muscles of his arms and legs, the great bend of his shoulders practically quiver with anticipation of conflict. He knows that the instructions for the day specify no guns. If one of these Newtown pieces of shit is gonna die today, it will be because they just plain can't take the hit. Behind Pusher, there's a rush of battle. A moaning wall of aggression oozes out in advance of the surging knot of thugs. This guy in the front has some balls, Pusher thinks. He's coming like there's no tomorrow. Pusher's stride is hampered only slightly by the thin planks of body armor, encasing his chest and extremities. The lightweight plastic really delivers. He reaches up and snaps a pair of shades down from his helmet. Never risk the eyes. A few more yards and I'll close this guy's case, then I'll trim his twin. He takes a quick pull off a water line hanging from the bag on his back. Ready. Amid the violent rhythm of respiration and running, Pusher's mind floats as tranquil as a cat sunbathing in a bookstore window. His thoughts revel in the ancient patterns and pulses of conflict. Here we are running towards each other, about to engage in a field of battle. The drive to exert direct power over another being, to dominate, it fills him with a languorous sense of satisfaction even as his massive calves carrying him toward the promise of life-threatening combat. What do we know about our enemies? Does it matter whether they're squatters whose only crime may be an error in judgment? Pusher recognizes the answer to his rhetorical question is no. He is here only for the thrill the torment and promise of battle, nothing more or less. The identity of the enemy means nothing to him. Kali is 100 yards ahead of everyone, but Pillhead John, who is surprisingly only back a few yards. Pill is breathing hard, as you'd expect for someone who smokes a pack a day. Must have been an amazing athlete as a kid to be in such shape even now, Kali thinks. Shouldn't be able to smell ozone when it's already raining, should you? He realizes that the lead man, the Hindu mob pusher, as at least as far out in front of his people as he and Pill are in advance of theirs. This guy is just plain huge 6'5, 250, and most of that is not defensive gear. From 50 meters, the man is scary and closing fast. Pill slides back a couple more yards and flares off to Callie's left. It's a clear field now, just the two of us. Looks like this boy wants a one on one. The pusher shortens his stride, alters his breathing ever so slightly. Never get overconfident. This guy could be all goofballed up, fucked up, no idea what day of the week it is. Some of those types are dangerous. He looks for a telltale. The drugged ones almost always show a little wobble, an eccentric overstride that takes them a little too far out to each side of their feet as they run. No sign of that. Guy's mid-size, no bulk at all, no body gear. Although whose clothes make it harder to tell for sure, must be a scrapper. Hands are free, nothing's showing. At least he's not afraid to lead. He raises his arm in front of his hurtling body, pointing it at the oncoming runner. You! I choose you! He feels the warmth of a smile in his belly. It begins to hail. we will be back next week with chapter 9 of criminal magic and we hope you will join us please leave a comment and review of this podcast and tell some friends if you like what you hear